Revelation chapter 14 is where we're going to spend our study this evening. Revelation chapter 14. This chapter has a close connection to chapter 13. And in Revelation 13, we saw these two beasts. The first beast is of the primary importance. Its connection to Daniel 7 is very important. And Daniel 7 informs us that the first beast is looking at the Roman Empire. In particular, it's looking at the political and military aspect of it, the emperors and what they would do in speaking blasphemous names against God, demanding that the people worship them as deity, as sons of God. The second beast was then pictured as the localities and provinces that would enforce those laws and demand that the people then participate in those sacrifices and that those who did not offer their sacrifices and declare the Caesars to be divine would not be allowed to buy and sell and they would be slain. So that's how chapter 13 ends with a picture of those who are worshiping Caesar, worshiping the beast, treating that as divine. They are given a mark, a mark that is on their forehead or a mark that is on their hand symbolizing their worship of the beast. Chapter 14 is now the contrast. Is Now we're going to come back and look at the 144,000. We're going to see what they are doing. Now we saw the 144,000 before, and that was back in chapter 7. So we'll bring some of that information back in as we go through this chapter. But just keep in mind as we read this chapter, we've seen the 144,000 before. Let's look at what's going on with them. Verse 1 of Revelation chapter 14. Here's the word of the Lord. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with Him 144,000 who had His name and His Father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of a loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It was these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made heaven and earth and sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual morality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name." 
Here is the call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud one like the Son of Man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put your sickle, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, and the earth of, and the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple of heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice of the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle, and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. All right, well, there's three movements in this, but yet it all corresponds together in one primary message, a prophetic statement about the judgment that is about to come. And so we'll look into these things as we begin. First five verses, our imagery takes us to Zion. We see the Lamb, we see the 144,000. Back in chapter 7, we noted the 144,000 as a symbol representing all of God's people. Remember we saw in chapter 7 the declaration before God was going to judge, the servants of God must be sealed. And the numbering of the servants of God that were sealed was 144,000. And so as a symbol then a power number to suggest that it is all of God's servants, none of them would be left out of this preservation. Now in chapter 13 we read all the inhabitants of the earth are worshiping the beast except those who are the servants of God, those who are faithful to Jesus. And the imagery of that was this mark. And we talked last week about the number 666. And this imagery is not something to get unnerved or upset about, but just simply showing they are the worshipers of the beast. They are not the worshipers of God. They have the mark of the beast. They have the number on their hand or on their forehead, showing that they are not worshipers of God as the true and living God. They are worshipers of the beast. They are worshipers of the Caesars and suggesting that they are deity and practicing those sacrifices. And so that's why this chapter is really important to see the contrast. Those who are worshiping the beast and say no one can overcome it and they are giving their allegiance to the empire and to the emperors, the symbol given to them is that they have this mark on them. They are owned by the beast. They are giving their allegiance to the beast. By contrast, the 144,000, notice they have a mark. And it's the name of the Lamb and the name of the Father, and it's on their foreheads. And the point is that they are worshipers of the Lamb. They belong to the Lamb. And therefore they have owners, they are owned by the Lamb and have given their allegiance to the Lamb. And so chapter 13, often taken out of its context, and 666 big deal, and it's the end of the world as we know it, but it's just a simple contrast of images. Those are the true people of God. They have a mark. But it's not the mark of the beast. It's the mark of the Lamb. 
they are faithful to the Lamb. They worship the true and living God. And they do not succumb to the wiles and the deceptions of the beast. Those who are not worshipers of God, they have the mark of the beast. Why? Well, because they are doing what they want to do. They are in rebellion to God. They are offering the sacrifices. They do treat Caesar as a deity. And they are participating in that world religion. That's the contrast that's being set before us as to who are the true people of God. I think it's interesting to notice where the 144,000 are. You notice that they, again, are in heaven. The symbolism of that is going to carry us through yet again as to their location. The implication is, yet again, they're dead. We saw that in chapter 7. They're being killed for the cause of Christ. That's going to be made mention a number of times in this chapter. And the point, again, to emphasize to the audience, you're going to suffer, you are being persecuted, you are going to die for the cause of Christ. Now, this number, 144,000, as you probably know, has uh, quite a few supporters who think we should take the number literally. Uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses are the most popular in that, but there are other groups who come to the 144,000 and say, well, this is the true number of those who are in heaven. We should take this number literally. And there's a lot of problems with taking that number literally, and the first is what we saw back in chapter 7. The number comes from the 12 tribes of Israel, which would demand, if we are taking the number literally, that this is talking about only Jewish people that would be in this true number who are only going to go to heaven. Notice the rest of the descriptions that are given to us in these verses. Like in verse 4, it says that they're not defiled with women, for they are virgins. So that would add to our picture as if the number is a literal 144,000. They are Jewish men who have never been married or had any kind of sexual relations whatsoever. And then verse 5 adds on top of it, they're perfect. There's no lie in their mouth and they're blameless. And so that would also be part of it as well. And so if you ever have your friends who come to you and say, well, maybe the 144,000 is literal, this is the rest of the problem is why it can't be. Why we should continue to take these numbers as symbols is that this number cannot be because then the only people going to heaven are Jewish males who have never been married and never had sexual relations and they've lived perfectly and never lied and have no blame found within them. That would make the number zero. <laughs> that would just leave everybody quite out. And that's kind of the problem here. The, the reason for this language is to describe the spiritual condition. To describe the spiritual condition of these who are the true people of God. Notice some of the description there. And it says there, to use this language of being virgins and not defiled by women and to be blameless. This is not the only place this type of language is used in the New Testament. For example, 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 2. Notice what the Apostle Paul said. There he said, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. This is again describing a spiritual condition of the Christians. He says, you are pure and holy to Christ and you are not defiled by the idols of the world, the religions of the world, or any of the things that are false. And that's how God often used that. When you go to the Old Testament, He uses the same kind of language. When He speaks of Israel and their faithlessness, He uses it in terms of sexual morality. How they went to other idols and he'll use language of prostituting themselves to these idols. Not that it was particularly sexual immorality, though many of that, much of that idolatry did involve sexual immorality, 
But it was an idea of you're breaking the covenant with God. You are faithless. You are not remaining true to God. You are committing adultery against God. And that's the picture here that is being used in Revelation. is to say, these are the true people of God. They are not spiritually uh, impure. They have followed the Lamb wherever He goes. Revelation 19 does the same thing in describing the people of God as the bride is coming down for the groom. He says, let us rejoice, 19 verse 7. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And so you see the same marriage kind of language in describing the holiness and purity of God's people so that they can be married to the Lamb. And they are not defiled by the sins of the world. They are not defiled by idolatry. They are true to Him. And so that's what we're reading about here when we see this language here in verse 4 to say they've not defiled themselves with women for they are virgins. It's not saying that being married, that's a a sinful state or a lesser pure state or something like that. This is a spiritual picture trying to say they are faithful to God through thick and thin. And that's been our contrast. Chapter 13 is showing the faithlessness of the world. They're following the beast and they are worshiping it. The true people of God, they're worshiping the Lamb and they are following Him instead. You'll notice also a little bit more about this picture of their purity. He tells us who they are a couple of times in verse 3. In verse 3 he says, No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. And he says it again in verse 4. These have been redeemed from mankind. This again is the true servants of God. All of that work that we did back in chapter 7 of the symbolism, talking about that 144,000, We've now been validated right here. Who's 144,000? It's the redeemed. It's the people of God. It's those who are following the Lamb. Those who are undefiled by the world. That's the imagery that's being drawn. Their location is also fascinating. Back in verse 1. He looks and he sees Mount Zion. And on Mount Zion is the Lamb. And there's the 144,000. Zion has a, a really important place in the Old Testament especially. Maybe useful for us sometime to go do a Zion study and go check out all the references to the promises that were built around the concept of Zion. But very quickly, just a couple of things that we do know. We see prophecies describing Zion would be the place of the Messiah's enthronement. And we see that in Psalm uh, Psalm 2. There's a picture of here is God laughing at the nations who are enraged, holding them in derision as God establishes His anointed one on Mount Zion. The picture of Christ, He is the true ruler and by being placed on Zion that He is the true King over all the earth. It is also described in the Old Testament as a place of God's dwelling. That God would dwell at Mount Zion. This would be where God is. And so the imagery then is that here are the true people of God. They're undefiled by the world. They're not worshiping the beast. They're worshiping the Lamb as the true and living God. And because of that, they are in the dwelling place of God. And they are spiritually protected. And they are with Him, reigning with Him. And then you notice in verse 3, they're singing a new song. 
we have in our songbooks, as we were talking about before uh, worship, there is a song in our songbook called the New Song. I don't think the words are the same. <laughs> I think this is slightly different. The message of the New Song that's used throughout the Old Testament is always a, a song praising God for victory. Most notably, we see that like when uh, Israel conquers his enemies coming out of Egypt and they're singing the song of Moses. We already saw the New Song back in chapter 5 and about verse 9. Praising God for His victory. Praising God, giving thanks for the victory that they have attained through His work. And so that's what the first five verses are showing us. is a contrast. Where are the true people of God? They're with the Lamb. They are protected. They are blessed because of their worship of God. This leads us to the second section, verses 6 through 13. Where we're going to read... Three angels, and they are going to give three announcements. And this section is prophesying and projecting what is about to come. These events have not happened yet, but it is a description of here are the things that are about to unfold. Very devastating images to come. So we have the first angel's announcement in the verse, in verse, verse two verses, verse six and verse seven, where we see the angel flying overhead and notice his proclamation is that of the eternal gospel. He is going out and proclaiming the gospel. And I believe the picture is that everybody knows what they are supposed to do. Everybody has heard the gospel and so it is right for judgment to come. There is not somebody that doesn't know. We sometimes play those mental games somewhat today. You know, well, what if there's somebody who hasn't heard the gospel and they're living on a five foot by five foot sandbar in the middle of the Pacific Ocean? What is God going to do? And over and again, like here and many other places in the New Testament, there's always this picture of the gospel has been sounded forth. There is no one who is ignorant of what God has done. Romans 1 in particular really lays out that picture of being able to observe and seek after God even without the particular divine revelation. And here is the same idea is that the gospel has been spread throughout all the earth so that there is no one who stands outside of this wrath to come. And the gospel we know is the good news, but the idea here is that while that's good news to those who obey it, this is a picture of judgment to those who are going to reject it. This is a picture that says, if you are not worshiping God, there is truly judgment to come. And so verse 7 is the warning. Notice it. Fear God and give Him glory because the hour of His judgment has come. Here is the call for repentance. Turn back before it is too late. Come back to God before it's too late. Judgment is about to come. The hour has arrived. And so watch out. Be aware because now that time has come. The gospel has gone forth. You have your opportunity to come to the Lord to get out of your rebellion and serve Him and do it quickly because God's judgment is about to come. The hour is upon them. And so that's the message of the first angel. Things get much more... Um, difficult and gloomy with the second proclamation, verse 8. The second says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual morality. And that's all we get. 
in that proclamation. And what that is intending us to do is know that message was used many times in the Old Testament by the prophets, particularly in Isaiah. And you have in the days of Isaiah that Isaiah would make that same proclamation. Fallen, fallen is Babylon. And Babylon has been used as a symbol for the world power of the day. You see that in Daniel. That kind of becomes a symbol because Babylon being that first Uh, beast being the first of that statue image in chapter 2 stood for here are the world powers, the world empires that would make a stand against the true and living God and against his kingdom. And so that's the idea here is that the Babylon represents that world power. I think you can see that most notably in 1 Peter 5. We studied that letter quite a time back and remember how Peter ends that letter by saying she who is at Babylon who is likewise chosen and sends you greetings, as does Mark, my son. There's no reason to think that Peter was standing in the middle of the desert where there was not a city and calling himself in the land of Babylon, but that he was in Rome. That Rome stood now for that imagery of this world power at that day and time. And using that language represents its wickedness, represents that it is the power at the time. And so to hear the language of Babylon here, we should be able to piece together that we are talking about the Roman Empire, mainly because that's our context. That's what we've been talking about. Chapter 13 has revealed to us the Roman Empire, this fourth terrifying beast who's going to wage war against the people of God. And chapter 14 continues that image and says, I want you to know something. Even though it is blaspheming God and even though it is persecuting the people of God and those who do not have the mark will not be able to buy and sell and they're going to be slain, you need to know something. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. It is going to fall. Its judgment is certain. And that's the idea behind using this language, catching that it's in the past tense. Why would the angel come along and describe it in the past? Why not come along and say, it's going to fall, it's going to fall? Instead, he uses the past tense as if it's already happened. And typically, the prophets like to use language that we sometimes call prophetic certainty. And that is, they will talk about something that has not happened yet, but they will say it in a way as if it has happened because God has decreed it. Since God has said this event is going to happen, we can speak of it in the past tense because we know for certain God keeps His promises and it's going to take place. And Isaiah did the very same thing in Isaiah 21. You have Isaiah using the same language and he says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon. Now what's fascinating about when Isaiah said that is not only had Babylon not fallen... Babylon had not even risen. Babylon is still a nation, but Assyria is the power at that time when Isaiah prophesies. And here is Isaiah coming along and saying, Assyria is going to fall, and guess what? Babylon's going to fall too. And so here he is projecting over about a hundred years in advance and saying with prophetic certainty, Babylon has fallen. Fallen, fallen is Babylon. And the same thing is being done here with this angel. A confident description that the Roman Empire will fall even though it has not occurred yet. And that's what you see with the next angel in verse 9. The third angel, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives the mark on his forehead or his hand. Stop right there. That again makes our connection. 
He now turns and talks about worshiping the beast. Well, who's the beast? Well, we're talking about the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire stands for Babylon, this world empire that stands against God in its wickedness. He's not ping-ponging back and forth between different cities. This is the Romans. And notice what he says is going to happen. Verse 10, great imagery. He also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. That is fantastic imagery. Here's what's going to happen. You are going to drink the wine of God's wrath undiluted, full strength. Now, that's important to keep in mind as to how people drank their wine back in that day because you couldn't drink water straight up because it would make you sick. You would put some alcohol in it. You'd put wine in it to be able to kill the bacteria. Typically three parts, two parts water, one part wine, the like. That's why the imagery is so graphic as to what's being said here. Is you're going to drink wine. The wine represents God's wrath. But it's not going to be diluted down by any means. There's not going to be any water there to lessen the blow that's going to come. Full strength. God is going to make you drink the cup of His wrath. There is not going to be mercy here. God is going to devastate this nation. And so verse 10, poured out full strength in the cup of His anger. And then notice the rest of the language in verse 10. He'll be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels in the presence of the Lamb. It's somewhat reminding us of the Sodom and Gomorrah language of fire and sulfur, fire and brimstone. Again, suggesting the devastation that is about to come is going to be very severe for their wickedness. And then verse 11 gives us a little bit more. Visualize. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. That has a very graphic imagery of the smoke of your torment. You know, that's where you kind of get that burning imagery of eternal punishment. And that's the idea that's being pictured here is that those who worship the beast, as the rest of verse 11 says, notice the punishment that they will be given. They will be tormented forever. There will be no rest day and night. Here is the imagery of the spiritual judgment that is going to come across these people. So notice the dual language of there is going to be a physical judgment. Fallen, fallen is Babylon. The nation is going to fall. This world empire that stands against God because of its idolatry, because of its rebellion, because it claims deity against God. And then notice, and those who choose to worship the beast, they will not go unscathed. The torment will happen. Their smoke of their torment will rise day and night. They will have no rest forever and ever. Their eternal punishment. So very significant and graphic imagery that here are these angels warning and saying, do not fall into that deception that the beast has given, trying to encourage those Christians. Do not succumb to worshiping those emperors, to offering those sacrifices, which would have been a very real challenge. And we think about what was told to us last week in chapter 13. The only way that you could make money to sell your products, again, think agrarian society, got to sell your cattle, sell your grains, would be to go to the marketplace and sell those things, but you can't do it unless you worship the beast, offer your sacrifice to the emperor as God. 
You cannot buy anything. You cannot buy food. You cannot do anything for your family in the marketplace because you have to make that offering first. You cannot go to the bank. You cannot have your money. Trying to put that in our terms. It would be like no Publix, no Bank of America. None of the things that you need to survive are accessible to you unless you worship the beast. The temptation to compromise would be staggering. And that's why the angel is flying here in this vision and saying, don't compromise because look at what happens to those who do. The smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever and they will not have rest day or night. Their eternal punishment is sealed if they compromise to these things. That's why verse 12 and verse 13. Verse 12 A call for endurance of the saints. I I hope we've seen that's appeared a lot, hasn't it? Uh, Quite a few times we have seen a pause in the story and say, what I am calling for, for the Christians, endure. Watch out. Be prepared. It's going to be bad. And the sad thing is what we read in verse 13. Verse 13, we have noted a number of sad statements for the Christians throughout Revelation. And yet, one more time, Another reminder of what they are going to endure. Verse 13, write this. Blessed are the dead that die in the Lord. Message, you're going to die for your faithfulness. For your stand in the faith to refuse to worship the beast, you will die. That reaches all the way back to chapter 12. What is the dragon's intention? He was unsuccessful in killing the Christ, unsuccessful in destroying the remnant. He now turns to his attention to the offspring of Christ and is going to try to destroy them. He's going to use this beast, the Roman Empire, to accomplish it. And we are seeing his success. He will kill the Christians. Blessed are those who die in the Lord. You are going to die. And so here is the call for endurance. How many of us would accept the challenge? Uh, Wow. I mean, just straightforward in your face. Call to endurance. Stay faithful because you're going to die. But blessed are you that die. Ready? You're going to go out there tomorrow and do it? You're going to go advertise your Christianity? You're going to stand against the beast? Are you not going to participate in the economics of the world? Are you going to choose to suffer? Are you going to not buy and sell now? Are you not going to have any food whatsoever? Are you willing to die? That's amazing that these Christians were just being told right up front, here's how it's going to go. And that's why the story began in the beginning of chapter 14. Where's the 144,000? They're in heaven. They're with the Lamb. They're secure, though they're killed. That's the picture given to these Christians. It's going to be okay. Go ahead and suffer. Go ahead and die. But you'll be with the Lord. Be faithful. And so that's the call to those Christians. Last section, verses 14 through 20. The scene turns one more time. He looks... Verse 14, he sees a white cloud, and seated on that cloud is one like the Son of Man. He has a gold crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. We should not be thrown by the statement that it is like a Son of Man. That's how Revelation and Daniel describe 
Christ many times. Remember how Revelation began in chapter 1, verses 7 and verse 13, describing this one like the Son of Man, but it was clearly imagery of Christ. In Daniel 7, there is one like the Son of Man coming to the Ancient of Days. It's clearly picturing Christ in His ascension in that prophecy as well. We see in Matthew 24, imagery of Christ who will come in the clouds. He told Caiaphas and those in the Sanhedrin that He would come in the clouds of judgment. Same idea here. Here is Christ He's riding on the clouds. When He's coming in the clouds, that's bad news for the enemies. That's usually the imagery is He's coming in judgment. And so here is the imagery in verse 14 and verse 15. He's coming to harvest the earth. Now the challenge that sits before us in this text, and in our Wednesday class we'll have the opportunity to explore this difficulty more, is you will notice that there are two reapings that take place. Here we have the first one as we see the one like the Son of Man. He has the sickle. He strikes the earth. And we see a reaping has come. End of verse 15. The harvest of the earth is ripe. When that's accomplished, we're going to read yet another one. And another angel comes in verse 18. He strikes the earth with a sickle and he reaps the grapes. And so the big question is, what are these two judgments, these two sickles, these two reapings symbolize? For right now, and I changed my mind from the last time I taught this, and by Wednesday I could change my mind again, so stay with me on it, you never know. But right now I think we are reading the positive and the negative of the harvest. I think this is describing with Christ coming, and it speaks of Him gathering in the harvest, that there is perhaps a parallel to what we see Jesus in His parable about the gathering in of wheat and the gathering in of the tares that are going to be burned and destroyed. That this first sickle striking from Christ is saying, first are the righteous being gathered in, which reaches back to the beginning of this chapter, a picture of the righteous being preserved and protected by God spiritually. The second image then with the angel with the sharp sickle in verse 18, put your sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth for the grapes are ripe. And you'll notice that's very devastating negative language because verse 19 says, the sickle goes across the earth and the grapes are thrown into the wine press of the wrath of God. Notice the first did not have that negative connotation. It's just described as the harvesting of the earth. But the second one says, and now you are receiving the wrath of God. And so I believe it is describing this separation that will take place. The separation of the righteous as they are being harvested for God. They are pictured as safe though they die in the Lord. The second one is showing here are those who are the worshipers of the beast. They are suffering they are thrown into the winepress of God's wrath. The imagery of verses 19 and 20 seems somewhat shocking, but I suppose they shouldn't be too shocking because God talks like this. And as I mentioned this afternoon to a couple of friends of mine, it's amazing how graphic God can be. In verse 20, he says, The winepress was trodden outside the city, and the blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle. For 1,600 stadia, conversion, 184 miles. That's fairly graphic. You know, that would be a three-hour drive from here in distance. Amazing. But God talks like that. Notice Isaiah 63. Same language, perhaps even more graphic. How Isaiah talked about the judgment. Who is this who comes from Edom? In crimson garments from Bozrah, he who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength, it is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. 
Why is your apparel red and your garments like he who treads the winepress? Notice the winepress imagery again. And the question is asked, why are you covered in all this red? Well, verse 3, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger, I trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled them, trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath. I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Easy. That's tough stuff that's being told to us right there. Notice the the parallels of the wine press, the parallels of drinking God's wrath, a symbol that is being used here in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 20 to say the enemies are going to be trampled, they're going to be destroyed. And the language is really, I think, to say you're going to be swimming in blood. This is the end of this nation. Think about that contrast. In chapter 13, what do we see the inhabitants doing? When the beast receives this fatal wound that is healed, all of the marvel, who is able to war against the beast? Who is able to stand against it? It can never be destroyed is the idea. It's going to last forever. And chapter 14 comes along and says, it's going to be destroyed. It is going to be wiped out and the imagery is graphic. His blood is going to flow from the city for 184 miles a couple feet high. You will be swimming in the blood of devastation. It is time for the nation to be judged. It is time for its doom. And that is why they are being warned that this is going to happen. They have worshipped the beast instead of the lamb. That's why their doom is coming. And so the projection of these three angels and the imagery of the sickles is to warn the Christians and make a message to all the world. Do not worship the beast. Do not offer those sacrifices to Caesar. Do not honor him as God. Do not think that God cannot destroy that nation. For it most certainly will fall. And that is why the language is used in a past tense. Fallen. Fallen is Babylon. It is prophetically certain because God has decreed it. Its doom will come. And to use my vernacular, it's not going to be pretty. It's going to be awful. And that's what he wants them to know of this picture. It's going to be awful. I want to leave you with just two lessons from that I think we can there's a lot of lessons we can take away from this, but just two I want to give you for this evening. One, think about being the hundred and forty four thousand. Think about being the true people of God who remain spiritually pure. Um Does it, it does for me, do you not find it staggering that there are no allowances in these chapters for these Christians to say, these are extenuating unbelievable circumstances of persecution, of projection of death that go ahead and compromise a little bit just to save yourself for how bad it's going to be. 
It is shocking to me to come into this text and God to be so blatantly forward and dreadfully honest and say, you're not going to be able to carry on economic activity like you're used to. Buying and selling, forget it. Not going to happen. You're going to lose it all. You're going to die. So in the face of that information, here's what I want you to do. I want you to cower in a corner, keep quiet, and just hunker down and hopefully you'll make it. No. Here's what I want you to do. Remain faithful and suffer and die. It spins my mind because we have all sorts of excuses as to why we can't be faithful to God. All sorts of reasons and conditions and excuses and problems and difficulties that why we are prevented from serving God with all of our heart. We have all of these built-in things as why we can't follow God. And here is God telling people in the face of death, most certain, be faithful. It is a call for the endurance of the saints. Follow the Lamb wherever He goes. And do not give in to the defilements of the world. It doesn't matter how severe. It doesn't matter how difficult. It doesn't matter what the condition is. We are called to endurance and faithfulness regardless of how unfair, how unlawful, or how challenging that circumstance may be. And for me, this chapter and the last chapter, when they're put together, it's just a lesson that I cannot avoid. That he says, for me, I need to quit having excuses to what keeps me from serving God more fully. What do I think my excuse is going to be before the Almighty God as to why I do not worship and why I do not serve and why I am not like Christ like I ought to be when these Christians were being called for something far greater than what I am called for in my life of comfort and ease in this country. Be faithful in difficulty. Be faithful in prosperity. Be faithful in life. Be faithful in death. Number two, God's quite clear. False worship will lead to eternal punishment. We should not think that we can get away with putting other things in this world ahead of God to put our own comforts, desires, whatever it is that we think is so important. The things we talked about last week, how often we act like we are worshiping God through our wealth or through our health. That Well, if I had more money, that's why I'm doing what I'm doing because then I can worship God better. If I had this, had that, then I can worship God. These things are false. And now chapter 14 has revealed that false worship will get us eternal punishment. What a picture and what a graphic picture of eternal punishment. The smoke of our torment rising forever and ever. That is so vivid to Luke 16 where we read the rich man calling out to Lazarus to do something in the midst of his torment because it is so severe. It is so awful. The smoke of our torment rising forever and ever. No rest day or night. What a contrast. The writer of Hebrews gives us this great promise and blessing of being faithful and following Him that there is still a promised rest that remains for the true people of God. And those who do not choose that path, here is a picture of there is no rest. That's one of the things I think that communicates to our physical bodies so easily. I think all of us have an imagery of wouldn't it be nice to rest? 
We, we talk about, you know, if I could just have a little bit more rest. Oh, all the busyness, how the job is wailing on us. There's no time for anything. And here is a picture of with God, we will find the real rest. But if we do not worship Him, there will be no rest. And just simply torment. Well, pull your psalm books out. As that wraps up chapter 14, and what we're going to see in the upcoming chapters now is the unfolding of the next judgments to come. Chapter 15 is going to be the preparation of the seven bowls of wrath. And chapter 16 is going to unleash those bowls. You will notice a similarity what we studied in chapters 6, 7, 8, and 9, where first we were told about what was going to happen. Preparations were made for that judgment. And then the judgment unfolds. Here's the prophetic imagery in chapter 14. Judgment's coming. 15 makes the preparations. Chapter 16, and now it's going to fall. Now it's all going to be unveiled for us. So Revelation is moving right along as we look at God executing judgment against nations and peoples that stand against Him. We pray tonight that you will choose not to stand against God, but that you will worship the true and living God, that you will follow the Lamb wherever He goes that you will serve Him with all of your heart and understand that the life that this world offers is not of value, but only leads to eternal punishment and destruction. Serve the Lord. Obey Him. Turn away from your sins and be immersed in water to have your sins washed away and have the promise of eternal life. Be part of the 144,000. Be the true people of God. Won't you come and do that while we stand and while we sing?